Good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here and would love for you, if you have a Bible with you, to certainly find your way to Mark 14. And if not, jump on your device and follow along there. If you're new with us, it's our uh, standard operation to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we're now heading into the passion of the Christ here as we head into Advent. Interestingly, it's been beautiful to see how that is aligning. And here uh, we move into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, at the Mount of Olives. Um, and want to see this morning the agony and abandonment of the King. Charles Spurgeon said that this passage deserved for an angel to preach it. And newsflash, you do not have one of those preaching to you. And so I uh, would ask for you to bow your heads with me and let's pray and ask God to help us because there's an amount of beauty and glory and goodness in this passage that only eternity will allow us to fully understand and enjoy and just ask for His grace to help us get even a taste of that this morning. So would you guys pray with me? Thank you, God, that you are abounding in steadfast love. As holy and righteous and separate from us as you are, as wrathful towards sin and wickedness as you are, you're merciful and you're gracious to warn us of sin and to welcome us into your family by grace. God, give us hearts that are not hard, but that are soft to the Holy Spirit. In these minutes, God, do what only you can do. God, work a miracle for the joy of our souls, the worship of our hearts, and the glory of your great name in us and in this church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I hate being alone. I'm the world's largest, maybe extrovert. Uh, being with people is where I get my joy. Those closest to me and good friends would be able to recount to you a day last year where in a sequence of massively people-filled days, I hit my limit. For the first time in 34 years, I told my wife and friends, I'm tapped out. I've hit my quota. I've got to go home and be alone. It's never happened Till that day, and likely I'll be 70 again before it happens, I love being alone. I was made for people, and really this passage uh, shows us that our God who lives in community, our Savior who came on this night in the garden, is utterly alone. He's abandoned. He's left alone as he stares into the face of what's coming for him in Golgotha. This really is the prelude to the cross, this is setting the stage for what's about to happen as Jesus heads down this mountain into trial, into scourging, and ultimately to the cross. Really, in this text, there's a, a shift that's happening. A, a tone is, is, is moving, and it's a, it's a sober, somber tone where Jesus is heading into an experience of the will of the Father, the reality of sin, and what it's going to look like to be faithful to the call in His life. And it's hard. It's pressing. Indeed, Gethsemane means oil press. This is on the Mount of Olives where olive trees are everywhere. And it's this imagery of what it takes to get raw olives into this olive oil and this massive process of squeezing and pressing and squeezing and pressing to get the fruit of olive oil. And what we're going to see, what you've just heard read is a pressing. A pressing is going to happen in this garden. The disciples are going to be pressed and they're going to abandon Jesus and they're going to flee. 
Jesus is going to be pressed and we will see the wine press of God's wrath presented to him. And he will respond in agonizing prayer and utter faithfulness to God in just an amazing juxtaposition with his faithfulness and the disciples and ultimately our faithlessness. It's that aloneness and abandonment that finds Jesus wrestling with the Father and ultimately surrendering in faithfulness. That is the theme of this text. And this text matters this morning because we, like the disciples, are frequently weak. We're frequently faithless. We're frequently incapable to exercise even the base levels of obedience and righteousness. We're certainly unable to save ourselves and This text shows us that, but it also gives to us an agonizingly faithful Savior. Church, we are sinners. We're weak. We're fragile. We're we're flaky. We're here one day and gone the next. We're, we're, We're wagering our willingness to walk in faithfulness based upon how sort of easy and gettable it seems, and we're we're fickle. But Jesus is so faithful. He's faithful to the very end to save us by His grace. And this text gives us that warning. It warns us of our faithlessness. It draws us to worship Christ for His faithfulness. And then it ushers and calls us to walk in this world as those who've received an unshakable, unbelievable, unimaginable kingdom of grace. And so as we start there in 1426, we want to start with being warned by the shocking faithlessness of the disciples. This is what we see in 27 through 31. We see shocking faithlessness. In 26, the Bible says this, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Surely I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The immediate context of this moment is that they've just been enjoying the Passover with Jesus. They've just been around the table with Jesus who's said, I'm the Passover lamb. This is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant that's spilled for you. Have this and be my people and be my family. They've just been enjoying this night with Jesus, and he leads them out from that night up into the Mount of Olives. And when they get there, he gives them two sort of amazing promises. One, you will all fall away, which is not exactly like a pick-me-up after a cool dinner, right? Like this is like, you know, you have best friends over for dinner, and like you hug them for uh, the, the night and say it was awesome. And by the way, like, never come to my house again. You're awful and you're, you know, we're done. Like, it's like, hey, awesome night. Great. Love you guys. You're all going to fall away. This, um, this unbelievable sort of shocking promise that he makes to the disciples, which comes right from Zechariah 13, where the prophets were looking at this day and he he knows that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to come to a cross. And when he comes to the cross, it's going to be so other than what they were expecting, so fear inducing and so destabilizing that the disciples and the sheep would scatter. But then he makes another promise and he says, you're all going to fall away. And he quotes Zechariah 13. And then he says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he says, you're all going to fall away. You're about to see me go to the cross, but I'm going to raise from the dead and I'll meet you in Galilee. It's like, 
what an, what an unforeseen, shocking promise and prediction by Jesus. Hey, this is all going to go down, but I'm going to rise from the dead. You're all going to fall away, but I will meet you in Galilee. Jesus is fully sovereign. He's headed into this garden. He's headed into agony. He's going to be abandoned. He's headed to the cross, and yet he is in charge. He knows what the disciples are going to do. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows what he's going to do. He's not surprised by the disciples' faithlessness. He's fully aware of it. He expects it. He came to die for it. It's why he's here. And there's so much grace here in this passage where he's telling them, you're going to abandon me. It's going to be awful. You are going to fail. I'm going to rise from the dead. And you are the guys that I want to see in Galilee. This is not like meet you at Bravo's after church. This is meet you in Galilee after I die and rise again. And imagining these disciples failing and weak, sitting on the backside of this night and all that's going to come, remembering this moment where Jesus says to them, you're my people. I'm going to do something in you by my grace that's going to be unexplainable. And he makes these promises to them. And yet, so he's making these amazing promises of resurrection. He's making this amazing promise to meet them in Galilee. He's promised them that they're going to fall away. And yet in the the midst of being presented with their weakness, in the midst of being told by their Savior, you're not awesome. And the basis of your relationship with me is not on the faithfulness that you have to me, but on the faithfulness that I have to you. They immediately rise up in a competition of self-confident, arrogant, prideful uh, presumption. And Peter says, like he typically would, I'm not going to fall away, even if everybody else falls away. And he says, even if I have to die, I'm not going to fall away. And then the disciples don't like that he's getting all the I Love Jesus uh, Star Student Awards. And so they all chip in here at the end and they say, all say the same. None of us are going to fall away. And yet we know they will. They will run away at the end of this passage. They will be absent at the cross. They will have to be found by Mary's after he's raised from the dead. These disciples are going to fall away. Their faithlessness is shocking as it just shows us this brazen arrogance of self-righteousness that, frankly speaking, we might have this morning. It's easy to look at headlines of people that fall or see expressions of wickedness that seem very far from us and to stand in sort of brazen, self-confident resistance and denial and say, I'll never go there. I'll never commit adultery on my spouse. I will never leave the faith. I will never embezzle money from my company. I will never do fill in the blank. And the fact is, is that the seed of every single sin is in every single one of us. And we ought to be warned this morning at where seeds of self-confident, brazen pride reside in our hearts, especially whatever that thing is that we might feel this morning, we're outside of or above. God's warning us in his word here away from that kind of self-righteousness. He's warning us away from that kind of pride that the Bible says comes before the fall. And that's what we see happening here. They've got all this self-confident pride and yet it's, it's foolishness. And if indeed this is really Peter's account of the life of Christ recorded by Mark, then really what we see here is Peter fessing up, owning his weakness, owning his fragile faith to Jesus. 
declaring to the whole watching world, don't walk in presumptive pompous pride, walk in humble fear of the Lord. Bow in submission to Him. As Paul would say, rejoice and rest in weakness because in weakness, grace empowers. Jesus is strong. God carries us. And would we be a church that are ready to be weak, that are willing to acknowledge neediness and weakness, that resist self-confident, prideful self-righteousness? Jesus is warning us here against finding the the source and the substance of our hope in God and godliness and our ability to execute faithfulness for Him. You see, their passion was great. They loved Jesus. They wanted to follow Him to the end. They wanted to be found faithful. They had a great passion to to be with their King forever. The problem wasn't their passion. Their problem was their their path. The path that they were going to get there was through their own might, through their own strength. We'll even see that as Peter is so quick to grab his sword here at the end to rally and fight for Jesus. They've got all their their hope pent up in their own ability to to manifest righteousness and to live in this world on their own strength. They've misplaced their confidence and they've located it in themselves rather than on Christ. And the best thing that we could do this morning in our lives and in our souls and in the face of our sin or our doubt or our anxiety or our unbelief or our besetting sin, the best thing that we could do was get the the target of our confidence off of ourself. To to convince ourselves of what reality is trying to show us is that we are not all competent. We are not capable to be faithful. We need Jesus. We need help from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is urging us to do that this morning in this passage. He's giving us this warning, this warning that's meant to reveal our faithlessness and draw us to a humble posture of repentance that we've just been doing together this morning. This reminder that confidence in ourselves, selfish ambition, consumption with our own tribe and our own space and our own sphere and navigating our own life as our own king oftentimes leads to condemnable faithlessness, unimaginable godlessness. When self is in the target and self is on the throne, devastation looms near. But where confidence in Christ, hiddenness in Christ, consumption with Christ, worship that's set on Christ, affections that are set on Christ, where that is our orienting target, where as Colossians 3 would say, our eyes are, are, are fixed and, 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 and looking up above where Christ is, then what flows out from the family of faith and the people of God isn't condemnable faithlessness, but commendable faithfulness. And Jesus is reminding us that we are weak. And in that weakness and in that faithlessness, He's drawing us away from confidence in ourselves and confidence in Him. And really the rest of this passage is about Jesus showing us what immeasurable depths and links he has gone to to be a faithful savior for us to be a better king for us an agonizingly faithful savior for each of us and he's calling us in this passages is calling us to worship before him in these verses 32 through 42 
In these verses, we see Jesus step into the agonizing moments of looking at what God has caused him to do. And if in the pressing moments of, of fear and doubt and guilt, the disciples run and abandon in the pressing moments in the garden here, Jesus is going to surrender and submit himself to the Father in just breathtaking faithfulness. So utterly selfless, humble, surrendered, yielded, all for the glory of the Father and the good of the people he would come to die for. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be great, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. These words here, deeply distressed, literally mean shocked or astonished. And deeply troubled is the, the notion of horror, anguish, turmoil. Almost the, 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 the image that would come to your mind when you would be staring at like carnage. If you've ever passed an awful wreck and you've seen like people in the, the street or you've seen horrible, awful devastation, it's that kind of imagery, that kind of depth of emotion is what Jesus is feeling. We're seeing here Jesus staring deep into the fullness of really what he had come to do. We've seen him walking toward this moment, heading toward this moment. In these verses we're about to read, Jesus is getting a, a look at a closer and different vantage point of exactly what he had been sent to do. Exactly what he had covenanted with the Father to, to execute in eternity past. He's looking. He's looking deep into the pit of hell. He's looking into the depths of darkness. He's seeing the weight of sin. And it horrifies him. It stuns him. It shocks him. One writer said it, it's like it stops him in his tracks. It's, it's like when he falls on the ground in prayer, it's because he can't literally take another step. God, in the flesh, Jesus stopped. And what has stopped him? It's looking into that deep, dark pit of hell that is what our sin deserves. And when we just pause a moment and, and just take an inventory of how we think about ourselves and our sinfulness, are we generally okay with it? Have we kind of generally categor, categorized it into a, a, a realm of, of, of problematic, but we kind of know what's going on with it so it's not really bothering us very much or or would we be looking at our sin like Jesus is looking at sin here? Terrorized by it. Shocked by it. Stunned by it. He's experiencing, really in this moment, in his flesh, in actual life, he's experiencing what he, the eternal son, knew was coming from all eternity. In eternity past, the Father and the Son see the sinfulness of the world and they, they covenant together to do something about it, to at the right time send forth the Son to be born under the law to save those who were cursed under the law. And here's the Son now in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, in the Mount of Olives, feeling it. And it stuns Him. It shocks Him. This agony that He is feeling is the realization of the seriousness of sin. And yet, 
His agonizing seriousness is juxtaposed in this passage with the utter apathy of the disciples. Jesus can't move another step because of how awful this dark depth of hell is that he's headed to and the disciples are napping in the garden. It's a stunning juxtaposition of what's going on in their hearts and the vantage point that they have. Jesus has asked them repetitively in these verses to remain here, to, to pray, to watch, that they might not enter into temptation. He knows what's happening and he's giving them a, a simple command in this moment to, to engage, to be, to be a part of what's happening here, to pray for their Savior, to pray for this moment, to be a part of it, and instead they're asleep. It says over and over again in 37 and 40 and 41 that he comes back and he finds them sleeping. Again, he comes back and finds them sleeping. And the last time he comes back, he says, are you still sleeping? Are you unaware of what's happening here? Do you, do you see what's going on here? Does it matter to you? And it's that agony of aloneness. His disciples, these three that he loved, the inner squad, the, the, the ones closest to him, and he's alone, agonizingly alone in anguish. And instead of stepping into this moment with Jesus with vigilance and engagement, these disciples are just stumbling through it, asleep and negligent. This agony that Jesus is walking in as he's alone in the garden, looking deep into the depths of darkness to which he would go. But this agony is also interesting because it presents to us a side of Jesus we've not seen yet before in the Gospels. Thus far, we've seen a Jesus on a mission. He's been immediately moving through disease and demons and disasters. He's taught and he's done everything exactly on his cadence and according to his call. Nothing has stood in his way and then here he stops. Something stops him. Something stuns him. Something silences him. Something brings the cosmic sovereign ruler of the universe to his knees. It's not demons. It's not even death. It's not demoniacs. It's not big storms. It's not all the unimaginable things that we can't even conceive of, of what would stop someone. No, what is it that stops Jesus in his tracks? Well, in his prayer, we see what's stopping him. He says in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It's the cup. The cup is what stuns and stops Jesus. And what is this cup? We've just sung about it. Thank you, Brennus, for leading us that way. It's this bitter cup of the wrath of God, the, the right anger of a fully righteous, completely holy, utterly divine God against sin and wickedness and darkness. Isaiah 51, says, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. He calls this cup his wrath. In Psalm 75, 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup. The cup in the scriptures represents 
the wrath of God on human evil. It's the anger of God on that which opposes him, opposes his righteousness, opposes his kingship, opposes his lordship over all creation. That wrath that, that is just against what is wicked and immoral. That's what this cup is and that's what Jesus is staring into. Jesus, the Son of God, who in every moment of His eternal existence has only ever looked at the Father and seen love and welcome and community and affection, now looks and sees wrath. He sees this wrath and it shocks Him. And it ought to shock us, church. It ought to cause us to, to be brought to our knees, our jealousy, our bitterness, our pride, our selfish ambition, our lust, our greed, our gossip, our hatred, our divisiveness, our worldliness, whatever sin, it's, it's, it's not meaningless. It's not trivial. It's not small. It's cosmically significant. It stopped the Son of God in His tracks and brought Him to His knees. And would it do the same for us. Calvin said the, the good news of the gospel has to crush us before it can cure us. It has to diagnose us before it can deliver us. And this is a crushing, diagnosing moment here. We're not awesome. We're not invincible. We're not righteous on our own. We're not spiritually strong and mature on our own. No, we're, we're needy. We've got sin in us that's waging war against the kingship and lordship of God. Jesus, in this moment, is staring into all of that. And He's not staring into it like us. He's like us in His humanity, but He's the sinless Son of God. He's staring into this cup as the righteous one who, though tempted as we were, was without sin. He's seeing a wrath that is entirely other than Him undeserving to Him, and yet experienced fully by Him. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing Jesus to look there, to go there, to feel that for us. And in all of that anguish, and all of that pain, and all of that weight, does Jesus run? Does He flee? No, it says when he's feeling all of that, what does Jesus do? He runs to the only place he's ever known, his Father. And he says, Abba, Father, this weight, this impossible weight is driving Jesus to the Father. To say, Dad, Abba, Dad, help. What I'm looking at is horrific. He even would say here, remove this cup from me. Dad, I don't, want to, I don't want to go here. It's too awful, too deep, too painful, too horrible. Would you provide rescue? Who has, church, the resources to deal with our sin, to deal with universal sin, to deal with wickedness in our hearts and wickedness in this world? Who has the resources to deal with injustice? on planet earth, who has the power to meet us in the deepest, darkest, most unimaginable sorrow and agony and trial and trouble. You know who does? Abba. Yahweh. 
Yahweh does. There's not another place to run. There's not another person to cry out to who's got the resources that we need. And Jesus is providing for us an amazing picture and model of how to run and how to bow and how to cry out in the midst of unimaginable desperation. And he cries to his father. He says, remove this cup from me. We do not have a distant, cold, robotic God who's throwing down to us moral codes to keep in order to make ourselves feel better and one day end up floating on a cloud playing a harp in heaven. No, we've got a sympathetic high priest who has gone through suffering. He's gone through pain. He's looked deep into the cup of wrath. He's felt the weight of sin. He knows the depths of the depravity of our heart. He knows what penalty our sin deserves. And he, in his humanity here, says, Father, is there another way? Does it have to go through that? Does, does, does that have to be what happens here to save a people? Does, does that cup have to be drank? Does that wrath have to be poured out? Is there any other way? Are you sure? Are you sure this is the route that we have to take? In church, the answer is horrifically yes. There's not another way for a broken world and sinful humanity to be made right with the holy and righteous God other than that that God, both in full glorious divinity and in unbelievable humanity, would come together as one and live as a man, as God, perfectly and righteously satisfying the, the full requirement of God's righteous standard and sympathetically being human for us and would then drink that cup on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what God has done. That's how much God loves His people. He loves His people enough to pay that cost. That's what it takes to save a rebel-hearted, self-loving, abandoning people away from sin and destruction and darkness into life and light in the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus begging to the Father in, in all of this agony. He's in turmoil as He looks in this cup and He says, is there any way you can remove this cup? And yet He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. At the end of the day, Jesus has got a real unavoidable desire to not drink this cup. In his human body, he does not want what that cup's going to mean. And yet, in a moment of just amazing, humble self-sacrifice, he says, I'm going to lay down what in this present moment is my desire for what is ultimately my cosmically glorious desire to honor the Father. And I'm going to say to the Father, whatever you will is where I will. Wherever you would have me go, for your glory and for the joy of your people, send me. Send me there. Jesus, tasting the wrath of God in full. See, Jesus wasn't preparing to just die like a martyr. A lot of people got crucified, upside down, burned at the stake, sawn in half. Go read Hebrews 11. What's amazing about Jesus is not that he died for you. What's amazing about Jesus is that He drank wrath for you. He absorbed wrath. Propitiation is what the Bible calls this moment where 
a dam breaks and wrath that would consume a sinful world and a sinful people lands on the sinless Savior instead. That's what Jesus is doing here. And you might see all of this and hear wrath in this horrifying moment and say, I don't like a God of wrath. I want a God of love. How could a God of love do this to his son? And Tim Keller is insightful to point to us that wrath not only has a response to injustice, but it also is a response to love. That anger and, and, and action Flowing from that anger is the right response to the degree that we love someone or something. And to the, to the degree that we're apathetic towards someone or something, we're inactive to go against what threatens those people or those things. And yet the more we love someone and the more we love something, the more riled we become, the more indignant we become, the more angry and oppositional we become at that which comes against those that we love. And in the pouring out of wrath on sin, God is not only demonstrating His justice against injustice, He's demonstrating His love for you. The sin that John reminds us, the sin that was, is aimed at your death, that leads, that's, that's coming to steal and kill and destroy you, God hates that sin. He hates that sin and he hates the, the devil because the devil hates you and he set his love on you in eternity past and so therefore he must pour out wrath against that sin. He has to punish that sin. And yet in the gospel, he's made a way for those that rightfully deserve to receive that wrath to escape. In our God, love and justice are coming together. This love and this justice, they're not in opposition. No, this is, this wrath-absorbing moment for Jesus, this is the, the overwhelming love of God in Christ that should lead us to worship. Seeing the, the sin of our hearts and the holiness of God and seeing even in this text the, the cup of the wrath of God and feeling it bearing down on us and then Jesus saying, I'll take it. I'll drink that cup. This is the love that should lead us to worship. The love that conquers a mountain of wrath is the love that you were made to know and I was made to know. It's a, a love that will sustain us. It's a love that can save us. It's a love that will carry us every day of our life. It's a love that proves to us that God is rich in love and because of great Love, He sent the Son to absorb the wrath that we deserve. If you've got God A who basically gives nothing to, to theoretically save you from your sin, it costs Him nothing and He has to do nothing to save you, how loved do you really feel by that? And yet if you've got a God who sends the Son and sacrifices Himself and absorbs wrath on your behalf to save you from your sin and to draw you to Himself, what a love. As the hymn says, what a cost. What a love, what a cost. What amazing grace at the cross. It's this love of God that would see us in our sin here and drink wrath on our behalf that is meant to sustain and carry us in worship all of our days. And he says to them, in verse 37, he comes back the last time and he says, 
to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In verse 39, and again, he went away and prayed, saying those same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them a third time and said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. I've been with the Father. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus goes through all of this. He wrestles with the Father. He stares into the wrathful cup. It's in the Father's hand. He's agonizing in abandonment, and yet he stands up in resolute faithfulness and says, rise, the hour has come with faithfulness to the Father in mind and with love for you in mind, your Savior stands up and says, let's go do what all eternity has been leading to. Let's go accomplish work for people that they could never accomplish for themselves. And that work, that faithfulness, that resolute Savior ought to draw us to worship this morning. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And it also should sustain and call us to walk to walk in a kingdom that's colored by amazing grace. He stands up and immediately a big crowd come at him and they come at him with swords and clubs. It says in verse 43, Judas comes with this slithering scheme to kiss Jesus and as if he he was in some kind of plot to overthrow an oppositional political opponent. And this moment is just telling because it reveals that Neither Judas nor these crowds have a clue about what kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing and what kind of king he is. He's already said, I'm in full control. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. You're not taking my life from me. I'm laying it down of my own accord. You see, they expect that Jesus is still in some kind of political maneuvering where he's trying to maintain political clout and and claim some kind of earthly throne and that he's going to come against them. He says, haven't I been teaching you day after day? Wouldn't you take me then? Why do you come as with swords and clubs? Why do you slither in as with the betrayer's kiss? No, you're not here to take my life. I'm here to lay it down. I'm here to lay my life down to drink a cup of wrath for the sins of the world. And it says that as they come to take Jesus, Peter, who just a few minutes ago was sleeping on Jesus while he was in the agony of staring into the wrath of God, now is ready to fight for Jesus. And he jerks out his sword and slices the ear off of one of these guys in the crowd. And all of that is just this reminder that Peter's got the wrong kind of kingdom in mind. And he's got the wrong kind of living in mind. He's got proactive, political power management in mind, not humble self-sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'm a different kind of king. I'm a different kind of king, bringing a different kind of kingdom. And in 48, he says to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. He says, I'm not here as a robber. I'm here as a redeemer. I've not come to to fight with you to maintain my earthly prowess. I've come to lay my life down to save a people. And here in verse 50, we see what Jesus predicted happening. They all fled. They all leave him and Jesus is utterly alone. 
He's abandoned in the garden. All these disciples, whether because of fear or guilt or self-preservation, they have opted out. They've opted for self over worship. And it even says that as they all leave, one young man follows him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This man would rather run away through the town in shameful nakedness than be anywhere near where Jesus was headed. And this sort of shameful nakedness at the climax of this moment paints a stunning picture of where Jesus ends this night. He's come into this garden with his friends, hoping to walk through this moment of agony together with them, and yet they've slept on him. They've fled from him. And then, even if that's not enough now, one who was with him flees in nakedness away from him, and he's alone. And this man fleeing in nakedness just this week was an interesting picture and imagery back to the garden where this whole story begins. Where in a different garden, because of sin, Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. They were outside that garden, kicked out because of sin, rebelling against the kingship of God. They had been banished out of the garden and now angels were guarding the entrance with flaming swords and nobody could ever enter back into that garden. And here we have this naked man fleeing out of this garden and Jesus is alone as if to say, Jesus, this one from who all history has been looking, this person who would ever be able to come and absorb the blow of these divine swords guarding the entrance to the garden, he would come. And amidst a, a group of faithless, abandoning, cowardly disciples, there stands now in this garden one who was faithful, one who did succeed, one who was righteous on their behalf. Jesus had come and he had been faithful where Adam had failed and Eve had failed and everyone else before him had failed. This was the one who, for the joy set before him, would bear the brunt of the sword of the wrath of God. He would take the blow of God's wrathful sword for all humanity. He would demonstrate unbelievable love and grace to us. And in his abandonment and agony, Jesus was accepting the will of the Father to fulfill and to execute the plan of redemption. In his abandonment and agony, Jesus was fully God and divine and he was becoming the wrath bearer for all humanity and he was a full human representative to go where we couldn't go, to do what we couldn't do and to pay what we could never pay. Church, because Jesus drank the cup of God's full wrath, we can drink the cup of God's full blessing to us in salvation all of our days. Church, because Jesus was utterly abandoned and alone, He gives to us full, forever welcome and brotherhood and belonging as sons and daughters. And because He did for us what we could never do for ourselves, because He was faithful to the very end, we can be free, free from fear, free from guilt, free from our past, free to receive full and forever forgiveness. What a Savior. We faithless people confronted with what our faithlessness deserves, which is wrath. But God, 
fully faithful sending the Son to take and do what we could never do for ourselves to give to us what we could never earn for ourselves. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would we be warned today in this text out of pride, out of presumption, out of arrogant self-righteousness? Would we be led to worship by a gracious Savior who takes the wrath that we deserve? And would we walk all of our days as a people carrying and embodying and advancing a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom of humility, and a kingdom of service? Would we bow before this Savior today in humility and in worship, yielding to Him our entire lives? Harvest Church, we have a good God. We have a merciful Savior. Let's worship Him all the more. God, we bow before this passage this morning, confessing that we're not as shocked and stunned by our sin as we ought to be. We're more negligent, more prideful, more arrogant than we ought to be, and yet met here in this passage by unimaginable, unbelievable, incomprehensible grace. The Son of God, the Eternal One, stepping into life, stepping into humanity to take the wrath that our sin deserved. God, even in these moments, would You lead us to worship? Would You transform our lives to walk as a grace-filled people? Speaking of and declaring and advancing your kingdom of of unbelievable mercy and grace to the watching world. God, cause our hearts to rise in worship before you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.